Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Diana Elena Stanescu. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics, uh, part of the Perlman School of Medicine. So, uh, Diana, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Hi, how are you? Good to be here. Good. Very good. So tell me about your research. What's your focus? I am a pediatric endocrinologist, so I see a lot of children with diabetes, and I, um, I do diabetes, basic research in diabetes. So a lot of mice and rats and, and cells and things like that. So my focus of my research is figuring out how beta cells develop, how they appear, how they develop, how they grow, and how they they become mature. And this is very fitting for me because I'm a pediatric endocrinologist, you know, in pediatrics, everything is about growing and developing and maturing. So I try to take that mindset from my clinical work and my training, my clinical training into into the lab and actually focus a lot on, on development. Um, and this is important because we are all trying or we're all hoping that at one point we will find a cure for diabetes and that cure we, we think looks like a, a cell replacement therapy. So finding a way to make different cells into cells that become beta cells and make insulin and put those cells back into, into people with diabetes and essentially make them insulin independent. So by trying to look to see how beta cell develop and mature, I hope I'm going to be able to tell Field and the other researchers how to make better cells in the lab to put back into patients. Sorry, this is convoluted. <laughs> you know, it's it's okay. No, it's okay. So you're trying to, uh, what will be this? So you're trying to, what, inject people with pancreatic yeah. beta cells that have been cultured or um, induced yeah, potent so- or what? So I have a few collaborators and there are multiple people that are doing this across the country, but there are, there are stem cell biologists. I'm not a stem cell biologist, but there are stem cell biologists out there that take stem cells. So very undifferentiated, very, very young kind of cells that haven't decided yet what they're going to become. And they, they take these cells in a lab and they essentially put different um, medications and reagents on them. And over about 40 days, they convince those cells to become cells that make insulin. But the problem is that that process is getting a lot better lately, but it's still inefficient. And people like me, developmental biologists say, you know, you're not, um, you're not quite doing what the true path of what happens in normal development, you know, in during embryonic life and thereafter. So you're, this is what we're, we're telling the stem cell biologists, you're taking these cells and forcing them to become insulin, but you're not doing it in a way that's mimicking what happens in in normal development. At what point would you inject these cells, and you know, what are some of the details of it? Like again, where would they come from? Yeah. How are they created? So, so the the this is what's going what's out there in the field. So you take stem cells. So you take enough. You know, you take enough stem cells. You have enough. You you take a lot of cells and make them into beta cells, um, and then you're putting them back into someone that has diabetes 
and those cells are going to is essentially the current concept is that you put them in something in a device that protects them from the attack of the immune system of the person that gets them you know so you put them in a sleeve or in something that you know allows them to kind of still work and still make insulin um, and sense glucose and do do all of that but not be attacked by the immune the immune response of the recipient for example if you have diabetes i would say okay so i need to put this device in you it has cells in it i'm probably going to put it under your skin or you know in, in somewhere in the fat tissue or maybe even inside um, inside your belly somewhere and those cells are going to kind of adapt to your organism and over a few days they're going to make insulin so you're not going to have to take insulin anymore they don't, they don't have to necessarily go into the pancreas they can go into yeah. i guess any area of the body that's connected yeah. to the bloodstream yeah yeah they should not go into the pancreas because we cannot have a way the pancreas you know it's a very dangerous place to put put the cell because there the pancreatic cancer is like one major <laughs> fear of everyone so that's not the place you'd put them you'd probably put them under the skin to kind of be able to like monitor that area very well and make sure that you know there's no growth of those or, or or those cells deciding to become something else how far along has this idea gone I mean, so uh, has been so there's a there are a few company i think one major company and a few other startup companies that are working on this and uh, they uh, the, we are able in in a lab to do this and get cells that make insulin and maybe get enough cells to put it in one person but the problem is actually taking this from a very small operation in a lab somewhere to make it into where it's becoming available for a lot of people. So scaling up is one problem. And the other problem is that even the cells that we get now, even if they make insulin and they make insulin in a very predictable kind of manner, they don't make a lot of insulin and we're not sure how well they're going to work. So they actually, the, there's a company in California, I think, that actually put these cells in healthy volunteers, and I think they passed phase one trials, I think. Maybe they're in phase two. It's, uh, as you know, pharmaceutical companies don't always offer all of this data to the researchers, but it's being done now, as far as I know, in healthy volunteers. So, again, what is, what is the source of these cells? Are they fat cells that have been induced to be pluripotent and then differentiated? Are they no, skin cells? There are embryonic stem cells. So there are lines of embryonic, there are several lines of embryonic stem cells. And I think you can, different lines can, um, can, you can do this with different lines of embryonic stem cells, but they are embryonic stem cells. So they come from embryos, um, and they made, they're made into a cell line and kept in, you know, in freezers and stuff. And with time, as time progresses, they kind of, you kind of get them, you multiply them and you propagate them and then you put them into, you subject them to these protocols. But how do you, is there matching needed so that a person's immune system won't reject them? So we, ca we cannot yet do that. So that, that was one of the, you know, the conceptual perfect way of doing it, taking your cells or taking your stem cells from your blood and making them, you know, into cells that make insulin. But we are not yet able to do that because it requires a lot of stem cells. The process is very inefficient. Um, and it's not yet you know, at that level where that this can be done, even to even from your own cells to make enough cells to replace the function of the entire beta cells in your in the in the body. I don't know if this is a way out of thinking, but what if you were able to use a um, you know culture culture enough of them and apply them in a patch that would let's say you know poke through the skin or pass into the skin, and the patch would last a week, 
and then you'd have to replace it with a new set of cells and a new set and a new set. And each time you replaced it, at least you'd be able to maybe restart the clock on the rejection, but they could provide insulin to the person, let's say for a week or for three days or something like that. And they just, they would renew a series of patches on them that again would, would provide these, uh, these abilities, this insulin. That's almost what they were thinking that they're going to do, but not as fast. So these uh, devices, these sleeves um, that are protecting the cells, that uh, the, the idea is that you're going to be able to refill them or change them. Um, but they're thinking that they might need to do it every few years, not every day, every few days. The problem with, is that once your body starts reacting to it, like these are all like they all come from one source, from one source of, of stem cells. So your, your immune response, if you start reacting to them, you know, you're going to react very immediately to the second patch and the third patch and the fourth patch. So the whole idea is that oh. somehow you have to protect, you have to hide them from the immune system. So you're saying once the immune system has been agitated, you know, extremely quickly reject anything new you put in there. Yes. The, your underlying idea is a good one because they're thinking, oh, if these are, even if they last a year, we can take that sleeve out, put a new sleeve in, or we can use the same sleeve and just refill it with cells. And that's why it has to be like relatively easily accessible so you can take it out in and out quickly if you need to. So if you put it inside something, these cells inside, let's say uh, like a mesh net with yep. holes in it that are small enough where let's say macrophages can penetrate, but yep. you know, it allows the exchange of, you know, blood and extracellular vesicles and all that stuff. Um, you think something like that is what's planned? Yeah. Yeah. And they know they have, I mean, I think that they looked at the materials. So these are all like highly bioengineered uh, materials. And I think the materials are safe and kind of, sleeve and by sleeve i mean it looks like uh, you know those hot bottles the old-fashioned um, hot water bottles <laughs> you know it's essentially right. like a little baggie um that has a like a, an end where you can kind of put the cells through like a little uh, mouth um for it but that that's essentially how it looks it's a miniature i think the way that they it looks maybe as big as the palm of your hand that's how big it is but it's pretty thin but the um the mate the sleeve matrix itself i would think would it would it you know, acquire like fibrotic plaques or build up on it over time. So even if it was porous, the holes would get obscured at some point. So I don't know, yeah. I, you know, you still to replace the device or, yeah. you know, I don't know. Yeah. So I think in terms of bioengineering that material, we are pretty, probably pretty close. The problem is that the cells that go in there have to be really good because you imagine that those cells are not innervated or vascularized. They have to feed through from like both sides of the sleeve through blood vessels that grow on the surface on the, the on the top and bottom surface of the sleeve. The problem is that the the layer of cells has to be pretty thin because otherwise they just become necrotic and hypoxic and stuff. So yeah. they they have to be really top notch cells that are like not kind of you know getting confused and not making insulin or, you know, like they have to be really, really good from a, from a functional perspective. Um, just because the amount of cells that you can put in that sleeve is essentially very small. Well, what if you made it like a radiator, you know, a series of fins, sleeve fins with cells inside of them. Each one's maybe like a millimeter thick. And again, it acts like a radiator. And that yeah. way you can have a whole bunch in the same spot and you know, still have a lot of surface area. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the idea to increase surface area for them. 
are there, are there any tissue types that you can take uh, examples from and do some biomimicry, like certain tissue types that are just incredibly porous or, you know, incredibly innervated or vascularized, I mean? I think the, like, to put that, you mean where you put this, where they would kind of get accepted more easily? I think... No, I mean, uh, just to, to model the construction of the sleeve. Like, again, I thought of... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, are the, there other biological systems and tissues that just to, like, have tremendous surface area? Like the stomach, you know, the villi of the stomach. Yeah, the villi. Is there a way to recreate that, you know, in this device? Yeah, potentially. And that, that's a, that would be a great idea. I'm not sure. They, they only... What I've seen the, them showing was I think at one point that they looked at at spheres, so making really tiny spheres, but a lot of them, just the same of increasing the surface of, like, actually probably just not increasing the surface as much. But yeah, the, the villi of the stomach would be one idea. Um, you know, some of the, probably the kidney or some other areas where you have increased, you know, vascularization would be another one. But you're right, the, the, probably the villi of the stomach are the, the best one. And that's probably as thick as this needs to be. It's like about 10 cells, so 10 rows of cells in, in this thing. So I don't know, I haven't looked at one villa in a long time, but that's probably like about 10 rows of cells in there. Okay. Where is your specialty in this process? What, what part are you focused in on? So I'm focused on making sure that those cells that we put in there, they are actually cells that like getting as, as good as we can get them. So I am focusing on making understanding the developmental part so what happens in normal development with several factors um you know like how the beta cells form and why they form and how to increase their their ability to function better and uh, so i can talk to my uh, co-worker and friend who's a stem cell biologist and tell him you know this is what you should do this is what you should focus on and this is a way that you can improve the current protocol where are you at personally with your research like uh Again, what are some of the milestones that you've recently achieved or that you're close to achieving? Um, unfortunately, science and research is a continued, <laughs> is a continued uh, internal assessment of I always want to do more and I always feel like I haven't done enough and we always should do more. And with every single step that you make in the direction that seemed fine yesterday, every single time you're kind of like, the, the concept is that you open a door and that you open the door, you look at the corridor and then you realize that there is more <laughs> doors <laughs> to open after, after that. Right. You know, we have several projects. One of them is looking at single cell transcriptomic approach to look at, at development and trying to understand development, just looking at transcriptomic differences. And the same inform, informs stem cell biologists about that. The other major project is looking at um, actually babies um, that have increased insulin secretion and looking how their beta cells form. So there's a, there are a few genetic conditions that lead to increase the opposite of diabetes in babies lead to increased insulin secretion. So part of what we're doing is trying to understand how these beta cells work and why do they form like that? So they make too much insulin because that's going to help us figuring out how we can, you know, make stem cells make more insulin. So those are two of the major projects. The other project that we're doing is looking at alpha cells. You know, so everybody's in the diabetes field, or not everybody, but most people in the diabetes field focus on um, the beta cell because that's the you know that's the prize, that's the cell that makes insulin and is going to cure diabetes. But alpha cells that make glucagon are also important, 
and they and glucagon is also one of the hormones that get lost that gets lost in, in type 1 diabetes so one of the projects that i'm working on is focusing on alpha cell development and uh, until recently this has been an area that people have not focused um, a lot on so i'm trying to i'm trying to answer some of the important questions related to that if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes is the issue that uh, i thought that um... Pancreatic beta cells were differentiable already, but the rejection component is a real big problem. But is it the differentiation problem? Like, yeah. <clears throat> um, are the cells, let's say, I don't know, let's say it's one, each cell produces a certain amount of insulin normally. Yeah. And the, um, you know, the stem cell lines you're using, they only do half as much. Like, do they do as much production? Or they is probably it, don't uh, even do half as much. So it's, okay. it's one, it's one, one problem is the, the, total capacities also how much insulin they can secrete if they get stimulated the other one is the ability to turn on and off as a normal beta cell would um depending on the on a certain insulin area so what we know so far is that they're pretty good turning on insulin secretion when glucose increases and turning it off when it decreases but the the capacity the total capacity for insulin secretion is pretty limited they are looking that the cells the, the differentiated beta cells that we're getting they look very much and they behave very much like immature beta cells. So they, they behave more like fetal, like beta cells that you'd get in, in fetal life or embryonic life than like the mature beta cell. So I guess, you know, the more insulin they can produce, the fewer are needed, which will help with the size of the device, you know, the accessibility to vascularization, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, that, so is that why you're studying things like babies that overproduce insulin, you know, what is it about these cells that yeah. that we can use that will beef up capacity of these? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Huh. So what are some of the differences between the uh, an immature beta cell and a mature one? Like what's been observed? So one of the, the things that we're focusing on is the, it's, it's the concept of glucose threshold. So, you know, when, when in normal, you know, for people that don't have diabetes, when your, when your glucose level increases at about above 70 milligrams per deciliter, your beta cells see that and they start making insulin more and more and more. And then they kind of ramp up as the glucose increases in your blood, they ramp up insulin production a lot more. But that threshold in, in humans is around 70 and it's probably about the same in mice, maybe a little bit higher. So what we are seeing in the immature beta cells is that they start making insulin at lower glucose. So their threshold is lower. It's probably around like 50, 40, 50, something like that. But, and so because they start fast, they start faster, they don't have the same ability to ramp up at higher glucose concentration. So it's kind of, you know, they, it's like a marathon runner. You're kind of, st you're starting very fast initially, and then you're kind of running out of steam as, as you go on. So that's something that we see a lot in immature cells that they have this lower glucose threshold and, but they have a, a lower total capacity of insulin secretion. So what does the population of beta cells in a regular adult look like? Are they all mature or are some kept in this immature state that maybe do the initial production of insulin and then mature ones do later production? Because I've heard like, you know, insulin response comes in like two phases, yeah. but I don't know, differentiating, you know, like, what happens in the, in the cells metabolically during each phase? Yeah, the two-phase insulin secretion is because when you first get hit with glucose, you just release the vesicles that are already docked to the membrane. So the first phase is essentially you're 
whether the insulin vesicles in the cell are all docked on, on the internal surface of the membrane and you get hit with the stimulus and the, all of those get released. And then, you know, as the glucose con concentration is persistently high, you make more insulin through your endoplasmic reticulum and you package them and then you keep secreting them. So that's why that is. It's very interesting you're asking me that question though, because we know that in the beta cells, some, some of the researchers think that there is, there are hub cells. So there are cells that are kind of start, you know, the, the islet is formed of, you know, hundreds, uh, maybe a thousand beta cells. So they say there are these leader beta cells that we, they get the first signal and then they send the signal to everyone else. So one of the concepts that we're thinking at one point was that maybe those leader cells are actually cells that are more immature. So they start reacting faster because they are not, they're kind of a little bit different than everyone else. And then they kind of get the signal propagated in the entire island. But there's no, apart from that concept of like hub or leader beta cells, there's no true concept that the beta cells in the adult are more immature. We kind of think of them more or less the same. Um, you know, and this is the, this is one of the fights, not fights, you know, like scientific nice uh, discussions that we have with each other, whether right. it's, um, you know, when you're born, you know, so babies, when they're born, um, they have a lot of immature beta cells. And then those cells seem to functionally mature very quickly within the first three to four days of life. And we know this because of this difference in threshold. So is this maturation driven by the fact that they're born, you know, or is it this programmed process that would happen anyway. So is it environment or is it, is it something that's inside the cells? And these are some of the questions that we are, that we're ask, asking and trying to answer. Well, can, can you identify leader beta, beta cells by looking at them or like, how yeah. would you know who's leading? It's a, it's all electrophysiology. So it's essentially looking at the, the cells, like when you're, when you're looking at an island and, and there are ver various techniques that you can do this with, but to visualize it, but it's essentially looking at the cell that gets depolarized first. You know, insulin secretion is essentially coupling glucose phosphorylation to, uh, to an electrical stimulus that leads to insulin secretion. So you can... Well, like in, um, in mice, could they fluorescently tag, yeah. you know, the beta cells of a mouse and watch... You're saying it looks like a cascade where yeah. certain cells will always be the first to signal and then it's like an electrical cascade? Yep, that's exactly how it does. That's exactly wow. how you visualize it. So, you know, so where, where, where does this happen? Like, if you look at it in a, um, you know, in a mouse's pancreas, like, does it start on one side of the pancreas? Does it uh, happen in multiple spots? Like, what does it look like? No, it's all at single eyelid level. So if you look at one eyelid, each eyelid functions like its own little unit. So they all function in parallel, but that there is a leader cell in each of the islets. So out of one islet of a thousand cells, you'd have like one, like maybe two or three, three cells that kind of are, you can see that they are the, the first ones to depolarize and you can kind of see that the, the, the other ones follow. Okay, so each islet has how many cells in it? How many beta cells? Probably a thousand. The very, the on size, but they, they, there are probably, you know, a few hundreds to like a few thousands. And what is like the morphology of the islets? Like, what's their structure look like? You're asking me very important <laughs> questions that nobody has yet. I mean, nobody has figured in detail. So the islets are they're basically spheres of cells. And in humans, you know, the alpha cells and the beta cells are kind of commingled. Um, in the mouse, the, the organization is very, you know, it's the beta cells are in the center of the islets, and all the alpha cells are on the periphery. 
And then you have blood vessels that go through the through the islets. And islets are actually more vascularized than the exocrine compartment that's surrounding it. So they li- they literally look like these little islands um, of cells throughout the entire exocrine pancreas. Huh. Very interesting. So, I mean, if you look at like the extracellular vesicles that come out of at least the signaling cells, mm-hmm. you know, that's probably one of the methods by which they signal the other cells to take action. Yeah, we think it's they're all electrically coupled. So we think it's you know gap junctions and other you know other ways of um, intercellular communication that leads to you know the signal propagating into an islet. But uh, science can't tell what's the difference between the signaling cells and the rest of the beta cells. They they look the same to them. There are some differences, but they are very subtle. Like you cannot really find them based on tra- like transcriptomic differences or you know there's no staining to find them They're, they don't look they don't look or you know there's no easy way for us to find them in the islet unless we truly look for how they function well when you when you uh, take a population of embryonic stem cells and differentiate them or cause them to differentiate do you end up with leaders and followers or do you end up with like a population that has no leaders yeah it's probably a population that has no leaders they're all leaders. So because they're all leaders, they don't know how to work together. So, you know, you take these cells and, you know, people used to, as I was telling you earlier, you kind of think of this concept of having them in a layer, but now what they're trying to do is actually make them into like spheres that kind of hoping that just physical organization in a sphere is going to be enough to make them connect, interconnected in such a way that one leader is going to get developed from that. Yeah, because there's a guy I interviewed recently, Michael Levin at Tufts, and mm-hmm. he says that um, there are definitely there's definitely signaling like in the regrowth of a limb and a planaria, mm-hmm. and they've been able to regrow like a head where a tail should be, etc. So yeah. if this phenomena is similar and it has a certain morphology to how the cascade should happen, yeah. you'd have to figure that out to recreate it because I bet you if you do it the right way, it works. If you do it the wrong shape or the wrong way, it's impaired or doesn't happen at all, the signaling, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why, you know, that's why, you know, my work, I mean, the, the reason why I did the work is because there are all of these questions that the stem cell biologists ask us, like, what, how do you want, how, how this happens, um, and try to figure, figure out how it happens in normal development is going to directly tell them, this is how it happens. This is how you have to mimic in, in your dish or in your system in which you, you, you transform these cells, and this is what you have to do. Yeah, very interesting. I guess you'd have to play with the, uh, the differentiation, hold some cells back, try a few different things to see if you can get the leaders and the followers, yeah. and then uh, you know, get the right kind of signaling going, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another thing I thought of is if you're able to quantify like the extracellular vesicles that come, if it's a part of it, um, from the leader cells, and maybe they're different from the follower ones. Maybe you can, you know, culture those and bathe the a whole solution of like follower cells and the, the EDs that would cause the right signaling to, to get them to excrete enough insulin. I don't know. Yeah. So one that the concept behind that is the concept of exosomes of these like cargo secreted. So not necessarily the insulin vesicles itself, but do these leader cells put out like some exosome kind of cargo that actually impacts the cells around it. And that's that's something that we haven't yet figured out very well how to do. You it's, gotta hurry up and solve all this stuff. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no. but 
the, what I'm trying to say is like much like I find parallels between life and biology quite impressive. <laughs> you know, so so is a leader born or is a leader uh, made? So I think in the, my belief and, you know, it's more like a spiritual belief is that the leader is made, is not born. So I think that the, the leader beta cell, if, if you, if you're looking at it, it's, it's just the cell that becomes the leader is not in it of itself. It's not like truly different than any of the other cells around it. It's just one cell that's super connected to everything else. And it's able to kind of start first and give, give the, the, the leads to all the cells around it. Well, I don't know how you do this, but that's why it may be very important for you to look at where the leader cells are, because if they're always in the same spot relative to like the cell mass, that would give you a clue is, okay, we need to actually like, you know, shape how the, you know, the depolarization happens. It has to happen in like a wave shape or this shape or whatever. So yeah, yeah, if you yeah, place yeah. a cell that's not normally leader in a certain spot, maybe it's induced to become one. Yeah, we know we know some relationship with blood vessels, and I forget now if they're. I think they're the cells closest to the blood vessel. They have a certain relationship to the to the blood vessel near it, but I don't exactly remember how it is. Does the uh, the islet itself does it have its own membrane that's comprised no. of like uh, all the cells, or no? No, no, it's just a. a I mean, it's just the the cells that are different. They come in contact with all the cells the exocrine cells around it. Has anyone looked at um, whether the islets have a certain microbiome versus the, uh, you know, like the alpha cells, the exocrine cells? Because the reason why I ask is um, I interviewed a lady, I keep bringing her up, uh, Florencia McAllister. She studies pancreatic tumors, and they found that the tumors had different localized microbiomes than the rest of the pancreas. That's why I ask. Yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't looked at that. There is always a discussion of different microbiomes disposing people more to diabetes or not but i i don't know if that works specifically in the island but that's a i'm going to look into it well, i know there's, there's tons and tons of stuff to look into it's so complicated but yeah, yeah very cool so what um where can people go to find out more about your work um so they can either email me or they can i we hope to put out a lot of like a few of our recent workouts um in the next uh um, in the next few months on BioArchive first. Um, that's, that has become like a place where people actually put work. Um, but then I'm, I'm happy to talk to anyone, um, you know, that wants to know more about my research. I think it's, it's important for, for us to talk, you know, more informally like this um, and also publishing, you know, the, 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 the science papers uh, themselves because I think this is one important, you know, important way that you can, you can learn from others. Yeah, reading of papers, you know, I mean, a lot of people can't even read them. It took me um, a year of working on it to go from like 10% understanding to, you know, 50 to 70%. That's with a lot of work. So, yeah, yeah it, it, and even when you look at a paper, there's a whole world of things that are beyond the paper when you talk to the authors. So, yeah, yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Well, very good about that. It was, it was great to meet you and talk with you. It's very cool stuff you're doing. What's uh, anything else I should have asked you or you think that's good? No. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's a, I think in general, um, the community in general with, with research in diabetes, we've been through a lot over the past, you know, 20 years. So because we talked so much about stem cells, I want just to put things in a little bit of a historical perspective. 
is that about the first protocols to to differentiate stem cells to, to beta cells um, were published probably around 2005, 2006. And we are now, you know, 15 years from that. And initially when those protocols came out, everybody said, oh, we are going to have a cure for diabetes in like five years. And then in 2014, there is another protocol that there is another iteration of a protocol that got us much better cells. And that was 2014. And everybody was, like, we're going to have a cure in five years. And here we are now, six years after, you know, the best protocol that's out there. And we're still far away from having the cure. So I, th sure. I think a lot of this is, as I said, you know, you open a door and you realize there's a corridor like with 20 other doors after it. Um, so a lot of this is, you know, science is patience <laughs> and having patience with all of this with the scientific process. Um, so because I see patients with diabetes and because I have to have these conversations, you know, with, with you know, my patients and the parents are like, I, I want, I need you to get something for my child before they go to college. I cannot imagine my life, you know, with, with my child um, going to college. Uh, so I think for the people in the diabetes field, especially people living with type 1 diabetes, they want to know, you know, that there is a, there is a solution for this. Um, and I think a lot of times I have to disappoint them and tell them, like, no, we, we are not yet there. Like, don't wait for us to tell you, you know, in so and so many years, because we've said it so many times and, and you're just going to lose faith in me if I tell you there's going to be a cure and then a few years later, there's no cure. I'm glad you made that point. Well, very good. Well, Diana, thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm really glad to have spoken to you. Yeah, me too. Me too. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.